Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Caitlin Long, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. We've, we've talked about doing this for a while, and we finally made it happen. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other was in Miami at the, was that an event? Um, it was at the first Bitcoin conference in Miami. It was uh, post COVID is last year. Yeah. No, I was think I, with, saw, you, uh, was with I saw you in 2022, didn't I? Did we, did we catch? Yes, we did catch up at 2022. Yeah, because you were yes, at the briefly. event with that's Preston Pish, Jeff Booth. Yes. Yeah, and I saw yes. you outside. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. That was the off the chain event. That was pretty cool. They that's had, right. Did, off the chain. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of our photos on the wall uh, that projected on the wall. That was very cool. Yeah, that was a cool Brian event. Estes does a great job. It was. Yeah. yeah. Estes is brilliant. He was on the show recently um, and yep. they did like, what was like a 3D projector on every wall and they were telling the story yep. of Bitcoin and central banking. It was pretty cool. Love it. And they had those cool little uh, Bitcoin glasses for everybody to wear. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I still have it it's sitting on my shelf right now. I brought it home. You know, I don't bring a lot of swag home, but that, Brian, thank you. Your, uh, your event people did a great job. It's sitting on my shelf. I'll always remember that. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Estes. Mm -hmm. Caitlin, you don't need an introduction at all, but I'm going to give you one anyways, because first time on the show. So you are the founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, yep. um, formerly known as, I forgot. Avanti. Avanti. Yeah. Okay. So Avanti is now Custodia Bank. Mm -hmm. You're a longtime yeah. Wall Street veteran. As you were saying offline, you're a survivor of Mount Gox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that is sort of relevant to the conversation uh, we plan on having today. Sure. And we're recording this in early June, 2022. And just last night, we've seen kind of a flurry of market panic. I get maybe that's too strong of a word. Um, Celsius emailed their community halting withdrawals. Um, I think that was the extent of the email. I haven't read it a lot. I haven't read it myself. And I know they have a token as well that's collapsed in value pursuant to that. So all this is news, but it's not mm -hmm. new per se. 
we've we've all i mean not we've all you and i have seen this happen before others have seen this happen right. before a lot of the bitcoin community has been calling out uh, a lot of this stuff leading up to these issues so you know maybe we just open up with this you tweeted this recently crypto activities inside traditional finance should be ring fenced and non leveraged can we decrypt that a bit for people like people that are sort of new to the space that don't know exactly what we're talking about? What's driving this market panic? What are some precautions that people can take? And what are the signs and symptoms to look out for um, that in leading up to these types of events? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, I have to start with the proverbial. None of this is advice of any sort or, or statements related to Custodial Bank. These are all personal views. But, but I would say it's pretty clear that what's driving this latest iteration is a massive deleveraging. We've known, we collectively in the industry have known that there's been massive leverage built up in this four-year cycle. And uh, before we started recording, uh, you and I talked about the March 2020 crash, I, everything obviously in across all financial markets related to COVID, uh, uh, you know, crashed back then and a and lot of leverage got flushed mm -hmm. and then it built right back out, right back up again. Um, but this, this four-year cycle for Bitcoin and the four-year cycles for those who are not familiar are tied to the halvings of Bitcoin, which mm -hmm. happen every approximate four years. We're, we're, we're a little bit under two years past the previous one, a little bit more than two years to go before the next happening. And uh, there are very clear cycles in Bitcoin. I'm, I'm a believer that those cycles are mm -hmm. real and that, uh, that they impact supply. They don't really impact demand mm -hmm. per se, but they certainly impact supply. And, uh, and we're in the bear part of this cycle. And this, this particular cycle is different than the previous one's in one particular way, which is there's so much more leverage than mm. there was in the prior bull market cycles. This is my third rodeo. This is my third Bitcoin bear market. Mm. And um, you know, like you said, you know, we've seen this before. We've seen seen the panics and seen the a lot of innocent people hurt. Um, but I've been through this myself. Um, I had some lessons to learn about not your keys, not your coins during mm. the Gox situation. I've never been shy about sharing with people. Yeah, that's how I got into Bitcoin. I didn't know how to buy it um, back in 2012, 2013, 2014 is when Gox, early 2014, when Gox exploded. And, uh, and that was where I had all my Bitcoin because I hadn't taken the time to teach myself how to self-custody. And I always say that was the cheapest tuition I've ever paid in life because I didn't lose that much money. Um, but boy, did it teach me a valuable lesson and uh, helped me really, it forced me to go take a very deep dive on how, how this all works. I'm not a technologist, it's a scary thing. Most folks I think who buy Bitcoin start with, you know, back then it was the Goxes of the world. Now it's mm -hmm. maybe the Coinbases of the world or cash apps mm -hmm. of the world. But those are those are counterparties, and it, you're not really owning Bitcoin if you leave your Bitcoin on those exchanges. And as we've seen in each of the previous four-year cycles, um, Gox in 2014, and then Quadriga late 2018, mm -hmm. and then finally early 2019, and now we've got uh, you know Terra and Celsius, and who knows if anyone else is next in this leverage flush. It doesn't look to me like it's over. But in each of these cycles, we've had major intermediary failures. Yeah. And uh, it's just tough because 
I was talking to someone this morning, it's, it's human nature to be, to, to, you know, some folks are really short-term oriented, looking for the quick buck, yeah. trying to play the cycles. There's yeah. a lot of volatility in these assets and they think they can trade them mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, come in and then, wow, you know, just have a 80% downdraft in these assets. You and I've been through it a few times. Yeah. It happens. Mm-hmm. And, and boy, it's a lesson not to use leverage. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people each time in each of these four-year cycles um, have to learn that lesson the hard way. I learned it the hard way. I sat with my Bitcoin underwater and tied up at Gox, but I I started buying more Mm. right after that because I saw how well it, how resilient it was and started buying more and then fairly quickly realized, um, again, you got to teach yourself how to self-custody fairly quickly realized how to do this and realized this thing's not going away. And again, I could look back on that experience and say it was cheap tuition, but I sat with losses on my Bitcoin for a, for a couple of years there. I didn't sell out. I didn't panic. Um, and, and uh, you know, I can't make price predictions, but Bitcoin's an asset that's continually getting scarcer. And you can draw what that means for your own price prediction about whether the value is going to go up over time. But I continue to see the things that really matter in this network going up and to the right. Hash rate just hit a hit a new mm. high. We're seeing transaction volumes, wallets hitting hitting new highs or thereabouts. Those are the fundamentals that matter. And the price ultimately will do what the price will do because it's being impacted, of course, by things outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem itself right now. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, and so... You know, you, you got the cheap tuition, you learn to self-custody, which to your credit, self-custody was much more difficult back then. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely. you know, it was, we didn't even have, Ledgers we had the seed words, yeah, back then. So it was much trickier, um, but you had the fortune, I guess, to learn the lesson early. And that's a, a lesson, yeah. that, really a lesson on counterparty risk, like you said, ultimately. Yep. Yep. What is it about, you said this time is different. Does that the buildup of leverage this time is higher because we have more lending platforms or what, what's caused yep. this time to be a little bit different than last time? Yeah, the market's not as pure. It's manipulated by financialization now in a, in a way that it wasn't back in the previous four-year cycles because there was no leverage in the previous four-year cycles. Mm. Um, and when you started to get the Bitcoin futures market, it really started to take off. BitMEX started to take off towards the end of the previous one in that 2017 into spring 2018 timeframe. And of course, that's when, by the way, Tether took off too, right? Not Mm. coincidentally, it was all all related to, um, you know, bringing in liquidity and traders, but it's the Wall Street crowd that came in, right? Look at the background of some of the people, including some of the founders of BitMEX. These are quant traders. Mm. They looked at it in many cases, not as an asset, that they wanted to own for the ethos of it, but as a as an asset that hadn't been financialized yet, and they could step in and financialize it. Mm. I won't name names here because I generally don't do that, but I was surprised when I read a FT article, one of the better known CEOs in this industry admitted he didn't even know what a blockchain was when he started trading crypto. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of a, that, that kind of tells you something, right? You, you, yeah. It's not a shocker that that um, some of the folks who came in with Wall Street trading backgrounds tend to be short-term oriented. They looked at this as an asset that hadn't been financialized. What does that mean? It means it's volatile and volatile assets 
mean trading profits. And, uh, and so they came in with the same leverage games that they'd played on Wall Street. Mm. And some of them made enormous fortunes doing that, but it is not good for our industry. That, that is not good for our industry. So that's what's different about the cycle this time. I like to point out that we didn't hit the blow off top like we did in the previous cycles. Each cycle has gotten less, um, has gotten lower in its magnitude. Mm -hmm. If you look on the log scale, there was a 2011, I think, blow off top mm -hmm. um, that was, and then correction that was much bigger than we saw in any of the more recent um, cycles. The, the amplitude is, is declining. But that said, the blow off top didn't remotely come close to what the models predicted that it would be this time. Why is that? Because the derivatives traders took the top off the market. Mm -hmm. And um, and this this gets into the mechanics of how of how fractional reserve Bitcoin works. That's derivatives is just one form of fractional reserve Bitcoin. The futures markets, same thing with lending. Um, unless you have a lender that's a true marketplace lender that's not lending more than a hundred percent of their bitcoins, but I think we now know some of these big lenders, including Cred, which already filed for bankruptcy about a year ago. Um, some of these lenders were running fractional. They're they're you know, you don't have any insight into whether their balance sheets are, whether they're even solvent, um, yeah. because there's no counterparty disclosure, risk disclosure. The only ones that have counterparty risk disclosure are the SEC filers. Um, and even, even in that case, it's not that easy to determine how, them. they're not doing a cryptographic proof of reserves. Right. Kraken is doing that among the big exchanges. That's that's uh, that's definitely noteworthy because so few are doing anything like that. Most of them are just running fractional. And if you read the fine print, you're making an unsecured loan of your Bitcoin to them. And if they go bankrupt, you become an unsecured creditor. Right. And you're in the pool with everybody else, <laughs> so, yeah, right. including, by the way, with all the other stuff they have with the dicey blockchains that, you know, may or may not actually um, be may or may not actually work. And so if, if you're if your exchange or your custodian loses money in one of those because they go down and then the exchange go, goes down, you may have had nothing but Bitcoin deposited on that exchange or at that custodian, but you may still get stuck right. with losses from some you know, blockchain that, that gets zero day exploited right. that you didn't have any exposure to because you're in that pool with everybody else. And that's the way these things work. And boy, um, you know, again, I, I wish everybody could have a, a cheap Gox lesson because <laughs> it's, it was cheap tuition. Um, not because I want them to lose money, but because the because of the lesson to take away from it. Yeah. Yeah. I often say that pain is information. People tend to learn the hard way. And um, it's true. You know, the school of hard knocks is a real thing. Um, yep. And this. Absolutely. So do you think then this idea of. You said financialization, but then you said that traders took the top off of this market. So you. Yep. You also said you believed in cycles still. So does this mean yeah. you thought 69K was the kind of an artificial top on this cycle because of the, the financialization or leverage sort of scalped it from going any higher? Ah, uh, it, it is an artificial top. Yeah, it should have gone a lot higher. Mm -hmm. If I, I, So I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll put some cards on the table. I believe the stock to flow model 
works. Mm. The challenge is it's not the only thing that works, right? right? So you have multiple things that influence at the same time. And, and, and I think some of the crit- critiques of folks like Nick Carter of the stock to flow model are valid. Mm. It only talks about supply. It doesn't have to talk about demand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are multiple factors, right? COVID is one of those things that's just an external f- thing that nobody could predict. Mm-hmm. Um, the precise timing of, of, of course, a lot of people did predict that we were overdue for a pandemic, but mm. But so these models are never precise, right? right. And, and you can get what's called a regime shifting change um, in statistics phrases um, where the model stops working. You might have had right. a brilliant model that works great. And then all of a sudden the regime shifts and it stops working. Um, but, but, but I do believe the stock to flow model is, is valid at, in terms of one way to look at it precisely because Bitcoin's a commodity. And it's got a lot of the same features of traditional physical commodities like metals and agricultural commodities. Um, it's, it's the, the, the stock to flow is how commodities are valued. And, right. and it's very driven by, in most cases, supply. But what you also see in the Bitcoin world, like the Bitcoin miners are behaving not too differently than the gold miners. They're basically higher volatility, higher, higher beta versions of the underlying um, and so when you catch those at the right part of the cycle, and there are a lot of very smart investors who play the commodity, just the mining firms based on the mining cycle, mm-hmm. you want to catch it as the price is going up right after they've made their CapEx um, commitments. And so they start to get a high return on capital. Mm-hmm. But the timing of those cycles is really, really important to catch because those miners, just like there's leverage to the to, to the cycle on the upside, there's leverage to the cycle on the downside. Mm. And if you look at the at the Bitcoin miners that are publicly traded, boy, they did um, pre, pre they did foretell what was coming in terms of the correction in the Bitcoin price. Mm-hmm. The miners definitely led Bitcoin down. Bitcoin led the rest of the crypto industry down, and then the rest of the crypto industry has led tech down. We're we're just a high beta, high risk part of the of the tech universe for sure. Um, but to get back to your question, yes, because the, the derivatives players were there, I do believe the stock to flow model had, you know, it certainly implied that the price should have hit somewhere around six figures in this, in this previous cycle, and it didn't. So why didn't it? Because there is a lot of paper Bitcoin out there that's mm. supplying the, the, the real demand with fake supply. And what right. I mean by that paper Bitcoin is those are IOUs. If you added up all the IOUs from the intermediaries and then added up the total number of Bitcoin outstanding, what it's 19.1 million or so, mm. I don't think we've hit 19.2 million mm. yet. I'll bet you that, I, I, we are, well, we already know, right? Because we've seen some failures, counterparty failures. We already know that the total number of Bitcoins promised to people through intermediaries is far greater than 19.1 million. Right. And, and and so what happened? All those intermediaries that sold their customers an IOU on Bitcoin, the paper, proverbial paper Bitcoin, that went to satisfy real demand. And anytime you push the supply curve out, if you think about supply demand, I, I did a tweet storm about this a little while ago and someone just brought it up to me recently. Um, so I can dig it up and send it to you so you can send it out. Anytime you push the supply curve out, leaving everything else constant, leaving your demand constant, what happens? Your price goes down. And that's what's happened here. You, the, the, there's this artificial supply of Bitcoin from people who are buying it through intermediaries in IOU form and thinking they have the real thing. And instead of 
of having the real thing. Of course, they don't. They have an IOU from a counterparty that might go bankrupt. But more importantly, that's actually sapping demand for the real thing because right. it's more convenient to buy the fake thing. And people think that what they have with the fake thing is real. And they learn in these, these kind of situations when the counterparty fails, it's not necessarily, you, you, that counterparty didn't have one for one backing. They promised out more Bitcoin. It's musical chairs, classic, classic game of musical chairs. When the music stops, not, there's not enough Bitcoin for everybody. And then you have to freeze withdrawals, which is what we saw happen last night. Yeah, that's a lot of great points there. Um, to try and echo some of that back to you, I've, for the audience, fractional reserve, essentially, mm -hmm. we're, it's fraud, right? You're, you're representing, you have more assets than you actually do. And this, it, this impact on price, of course, it's just like fiat currency supply inflation, that you're increasing the total supply, so you're diminish, diminishing yeah. the purchasing power on the units. Right. Um, and to your point about the models, I think that I always go back to Taleb saying, he says, all models are wrong, some are useful, most are dangerous. Like you have to understand <laughs> yeah. that it's always a little fictionalized version of reality. So yeah. it's, it's definitely yeah. wrong. It's just how wrong is it? Um, yep. And then this idea of excessive leverage, we really just end up trading a lot more promises in the system than we have actual, Correct. whatever the thing is uh, that you're being promised. You have more promises than what you're being, than the thing itself. And as, what was it, Buffett, when the tide goes out, you end up seeing swimming naked. So Swimming naked. I love that phrase because it's so true. Yeah. What? Um, let me ask you this question here. So I saw you at this panel you did on April 28th, which actually included uh, the Celsius CEO. Mm -hmm. And you are echoing something, I think, from uh, Antonopoulos that yield mm -hmm. on Bitcoin is not sufficiently, it's not sufficiently compensatory for the inherent counterparty risk. So to get Correct. yield on Bitcoin, you need to give it to one of these counterparties. They're going to do some things with it, usually lend it out to other counterparties to short and trade and do all these uh, financialization techniques. And then from that lending out, they give you a portion of the interest paid on the borrow. But of course, right. they come, that's how this web of systemic risk gets built, right? It's this lending and relending and relending, but also misrepresenting at each layer, yep. right? Lending out more than you have, more paper Bitcoin and more promises than you have. Is that still your position? And if so, do you advise against lending out Bitcoin for yield in all circumstances? Well, I don't make, I don't give advice. Uh, oh, but, that's right. But yes. Sorry. I talk about the risks for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Andreas said it says it so much better than I do, and I'll paraphrase his his point. Bitcoin's a disinflationary asset. The inflation rate of Bitcoin is, I think it's one point six or one point eight percent. You might know off the top of your head, but um, but the CPI yeah, no, inflation no. rate is you know eight point six percent right now, mm -hmm. right? So just and that's by understated Bitcoin, by half at least. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of people have higher inflation rates in their personal finances yeah. than that, for sure. Yeah. But um, but yes, um, just just by owning Bitcoin, you're owning something that is that is being inflated at, at a lower rate than what you're mm. seeing out there in fiat currencies, for sure. Mm. And so you come out ahead. So why why do you need to leverage it? It's it's using it's it's picking up pennies in in front of a freight train. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, as and Andrea says, up eight percent today down 100% tomorrow. And mm. unfortunately, a lot of people just experienced that with the failure that we saw last night of a lending platform that was right. paying out these high yields. And, and the point I've always made is, 
all right, those, those yields look high on a nominal basis, but how do you know that compensates you for the counterparty risk? Right. We now know in retrospect that those eight or 9% yields were not high enough. Right. Period. Yeah. They didn't compensate you for the counterparty risk because the counterparty ultimately failed. Um, so th- um, that's the problem here. That's yep. so pernicious too, because you can't know if the yield's high enough to compensate you for the Correct. risk until you realize the risk, right? Yeah, and or until there's some real disclosure of counterparty risk mm. and um, the information that you need, right? Mm. It's not even like I said, you know, Coinbase has it. Circle has because they're they filed an S one with the SEC. Mm. You do have some counterparty risk disclosure information. Go dig into those financial statements. I really would encourage you if you mm. have any counterparty exposure to, to any of to either of those organizations go dig in, you're going to find some interesting things. Hmm. Um, and in one case, there's pretty deeply negative shareholders equity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, in, and in another case, if you look at the disclosures about the, this commingling of assets, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge because, mm-hmm. by the way, and this is, I don't mean to single them out. It's true of everybody in this industry, except for those in the state of Wyoming. Um, and then, and those in, in the state of Wyoming, because we have special laws in Wyoming that respect what's called bailment. It's mm. the same law as your valet parking your car or your coat check. You're not handing the legal title of your car over to the garage. All you're doing is handing them temporary possession of it. Mm. And, and what you get is something called a bailment in the law. A bailment means that you're just handing that over for temporary safekeeping, but you still legally own it. And the way that the the other counterparty arrangements in this industry work, which is true also of securities custody as well, is you're handing that off to your custodian and they legally own it and they owe it back to you. So you've turned your property right into a contractual right. Mm. And what's great about Wyoming, and this gets back to the, the work that Trace Mayer and I did and Jesse Powell and Michael Perklin, like a lot of people who are early to this industry we're helping to, to set up, how do we get a legal regime that respects the segregation of assets, that respects the property mm. rights, but still has a service provider providing safekeeping services? Because mm. not everybody is going to react the same way I did to docs and right. go teach myself self-custody. A lot of people will say, oh, this is too hard. I just don't have the time. I'm not interested. I don't have enough upside, so mm. I'm, I'm gonna walk away. Um, if they if they can't teach themselves or don't want to take the time to teach themselves self custody, it's tough. It's yeah. one of the biggest issues that we have to face in in our industry. Um, I think Andreas's view on it is right that when it really matters to people, and that's especially true for people in emerging markets, when it really really matters to people, they'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, but in in the U.S., you know, most people have better things to do with their time than spend a hundred hours teaching themselves self custody. <laughs> Yeah, until they feel the pain, right? <laughs> until they feel the pain. Yeah. For, so for it seems like we almost inherited this desire for yield in all of our assets from the fiat system because we're just always getting taxed by inflation. So you have to get into something that produces cash flow to offset that debasement. It seems like we kind of inherited or or ported in that mentality into Bitcoin world. Yeah. Would you say for those seeking income producing assets, they just avoid like don't consider Bitcoin part of that bucket because that's again, you're you can't there's just not sufficient disclosures or you don't know if you're getting compensated enough for the risk 
until the risk bites, so to speak. I know you can't give advice, so I'm trying to word this question. Yeah, correctly, I, get, I get where you're going. Sure. I, I, I personally don't have any income producing anything from my Bitcoin. I just, it's all cold storage forever. Um, I'm just wondering how you deal here. With it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't put it up for, for income production because I've learned my lesson personally, <laughs> uh, you know, that you just don't know what kind of a black box is on the other side yeah. with your custodian. And even the Wyoming special purpose depository institutions, when we're finally operating, you know, you, you don't see me out there trying to convince people to custody their Bitcoin with, with one of the speedy banks. It's, it's, it's not your keys, not your coins. It's encouraging people to, to, to learn this. There are certain parts of the market for whom custody is required mm -hmm. to be part of a third party arrangement, um, like mutual funds. The, the Investment Company Act of 1940 requires registered reg, um, investment companies, i.e. mutual funds. And then the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 requires registered investment advisors to use third party custodians mm -hmm. for their assets. So the asset manager is not allowed to have custody of the assets that they're managing. It's, it's really a a separation of duties point mm. um, because there was so much fraud that happened during the Great Depression. That's the history of it. And so, you know, there are definitely going to be a lot of users that will never be able to self-custody. But for everybody else, I, I certainly would would encourage you to, to teach yourself the, to self-custody. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, I don't think I'm answering your question. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's I good. But I, I just, I agree that holding Bitcoin is enough, I guess would be the punchline. Yeah. Yeah, don't I? I don't. I don't chase yield. There are people who tell me that they will borrow against the appreciated Bitcoin to pay taxes, uh -huh. and that they consider that a legitimate use of their Bitcoin. Um, and and now we're getting going to get into the theory. I like the, thinking about the way Mises defined debt. Um, it, it, some folks say because I definitely harp on leverage and rehypothecation and those kind of concepts as being at the antithesis of Bitcoin and mm -hmm. constantly say they don't mix and we shouldn't be mixing those concepts at all um, because the intermediaries who do so are going to learn a hard lesson as we've actually just seen it, but we've seen it again. It's not the first time, as you know, mm -hmm. but, um, but I don't harp on all leverage and here's why. Um, I, I like the way Mises thought about it. He made the distinction between uh, something he called commodity credit versus circulation credit. Commodity credit is credit that's backed with real savings. You've got a one-for-one -one commodity behind it. And in, that, in this case, it's Bitcoin. The circulation credit is the fractional reserve claims. And uh, it, there's an interesting debate. You mentioned earlier that you call fractional reserving fraud. There's an interesting debate whether it actually meets fraud. I'll come back and talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. Because if it's disclosed right, to it's you and you... It's not fraud, right? Yep. And that's how Wall Street gets away with it because they say it's disclosed to you in your brokerage statements. Oh, by the way, you can't negotiate your brokerage contract. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what's in the fine print of your brokerage contract, it throws out these big words like rehypothecation and that the average person doesn't know mm -hmm. what they are. Clearly, that word is well known within the Bitcoin community, but it's not out there within the right. major, you know, broader investing community. And I think that some of that is, is obfuscation by design, trying mm -hmm. to throw these big words at people 
So they don't really understand what they're signing up for. But oh, by the way, you're not allowed to negotiate those contracts. Everybody has to have the same one, right? And so there's a debate whether it's actually fraud or not. Um, technically, I think the lawyers would say it's not because you've agreed to it by opening a brokerage account, but it hasn't been tested. Right. And, and a lot of folks in the crypto world, you know, we're, 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 we're using ramp authentication as well. But mm -hmm. the, that's what Mises really came down, uh, made the distinction. If you're borrowing up to one for one, Against the commodity itself, that's legitimate leverage because that's funded by real savings. It's not yeah. going to mess with the quantity of savings in the economy and yeah. and mess the, with the interest rate signals that entrepreneurs need so desperately to be accurate and 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 not um, manipulated in any way. Mm -hmm. But once you get into circulation credit, you start going above one to one leverage. So you start getting to counterparties that will rehypothecate collateral yeah. um, and that sort of thing. That's when you start to manipulate markets. That's when it starts to have an impact on price. Right. Coming back to our conversation earlier about cutting the top off. Why did we not have the blow off top? It's because, uh, it, it's because price started getting suppressed. Price yeah. started getting manipulated. Um, and and, it, and, and it, it, so, so circulation credit versus commodity credit I really would encourage you to go read about it because that distinction makes so much sense to me. And so for those that are borrowing to pay their taxes, I understand they'll never go even remotely close to one-to-one -one leverage. Yeah. They'll stay at, you know, they'll, they'll over collateralize by two to three times just so they don't get stopped out in a swoon in the price over overnight, which of right. course can happen. Yeah. Especially in Bitcoin. Um, and that, that's a great, <laughs> yes. that's a great distinction. I love that you brought up Mises. <laughs> He clarifies everything. <laughs> if you got any questions <laughs> about economics, go read Human Action. Um, in regard to the Celsius thing, you recently tweeted this that I thought was an important distinction. You said markets are about to learn that being licensed does not mean an intermediary is regulated. Correct. Can you clarify that distinction for people? Because it seems like a lot of people just saw saw that, oh, including i think uh, a canadian public endowment or something also invested in yeah, celsius a big equity round fund. correct based on so people see that and they think oh institutional investment they're licensed safe investment but yeah. you make this distinction between light being licensed versus being regulated could you expound upon that there's a big difference and a lot of the intermediaries in this sector claim they're regulated and they're really not there's uh, there are actually three three layers uh, three words that you'll see registered licensed and regulated hmm. and they don't mean the same thing um, you every money transmitter in the US has to be registered with FinCEN but they're hmm. not regulated by FinCEN they're just registered and they're filing what's called suspicious activity reports uh, as part of their compliance program to make sure their platforms are not being used for money laundering hmm. there's no regulation and FinCEN doesn't have the staff to go do the auditing. So they're just registered with FinCEN. And then, then you can be licensed. Okay. So a lot of the intermediaries have money transmitter licenses or lending licenses, as the case may be. Those licenses are also really not regulated. Some, some would quibble what's the definition of regulation, um, but they're really, they're, they're just licensing regimes. They're not what most people, if you stop them on the street and said, what do you think the word regulated means? as it relates to financial institutions, they're going to tell you, well, the company has capital, the company has a, a supervisory exam, it gets audited. Um, the, the executives have been through a background check. Those are the kinds of things 
that happen to regulated financial institutions, but they, they haven't applied to the licensed financial institutions that are so, um, that are, that, that are so prevalent in our industry. And part of the reason that the regulated financial institutions, only a very small number of them exist, is because the regulators have given all of us the proverbial Heisman, right? We've been waiting to get, <laughs> to get the, the, the charters to become regulated. Right. And so when we talk about regulation, we're talking about a capital requirement. We're talking about a, um, you know, we've all passed FBI background checks. We've, we're talking about audit requirements, those kinds of, of things for the regulated financial institutions among us, of which there are a very small number in this industry. Hmm. Um, and, and what I'm talking about are regulated banks and, uh, and, and, and the OCC trust companies. Um, and I don't know about the capital requirements for the NYDFS um, tr trust companies, the, the, the state regulated trust companies, but I'll give you an example of the difference. The, the, the banks have to hold, in order to be considered well capitalized in the crypto industry, a crypto bank, if you will, there's no such thing, but um, a bank that serves the crypto industry. So think about the silver gates of the world in, the, in, their, in their business model, in their business line that, that covers crypto, they're gonna have to hold 5% tier one capital against all the assets on their balance sheet. Mm. So um, I, I put a Forbes piece out a couple of weeks ago saying there's a crypto custodian out there, $30 billion of assets under custody. If all those custody assets had to come on balance sheet, 5% of that is one and a half billion of capital requirement. And their capital requirement right now is 7 million. Okay, mm -hmm. that, that is a gigantic difference. And so the banks are regulated like at the one and a half billion in that example, trust companies are regulated at seven million, right? So wow. what is the definition of regulation? The banks are at the are at the top of that pyramid in terms of the highest regulatory requirements and the highest supervisory exam standards relative to non-banks. Uh, and because we haven't been let in as banks as an industry, we don't have all that prudential capital requirement. And so I think most people would probably be shocked if they understood that really most of the intermediaries in our industry are just registered or licensed, they're not actually regulated. And if they're examined by their supervisors, it's typically maybe once every three years, a bank gets examined at minimum once every year. And so the banks have much, much higher regulatory capital and mm. exam and compliance requirements that they have to adhere to than non-banks. Wow. Super interesting. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. 
And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. So seeing that some public investment vehicles had positions in Celsius, do you think it's, again, we don't know if it's failed yet per se, they just halted withdrawals as far as I know, but it looks like it could be uh, some form of failure. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Do you think that regulation will now be coming into, more regulation will be coming into the space in the wake of this failure or potential failure? Uh, I don't know the, the specifics of the Celsius situation. I'm just seeing what everybody else is, is seeing. And, and yeah. I, so I don't want to comment on that specific situation. Mm-hmm. But the broader question of is regulation coming? Yes. Mm. It always was. It always was. Yeah. Uh, and we've just accelerated it. We, the industry, because some bad actors have taken advantage mm. of the naivete uh, and, and the regulators want to come in and protect consumers. It's the classic debate of who protects consumers the best, the regulators who put all these requirements for regulation that don't exist mm. on the industry right now because mm-hmm. they've just licensed or, or registered, not regulated. But, um, but that's the way the, re- the regulators like to think of things. But of course, they're scared of the new things too, so they don't want to let us in. It's, it's kind of a classic catch-22. Mm-hmm. I've been pretty, pretty open and vehement that the regulators, had they let regulated players into the marketplace, more of the money would have migrated towards the regulated players and fewer of the consumers mm-hmm. would have fallen victim to the obvious Ponzi's and frauds and scams. Um, so, you know, look, I, I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but I think if you just listen to the politicians, they were all saying after the failure of the algorithmic stablecoin, whose name I sh- shouldn't mention, um, <laughs> uh, we now have a failure of an intermediary whose name I shouldn't mention. Mm. Uh, and, and the interesting question is, you know, does this accelerate the regulation that was already coming? Just look at what the politicians were saying after the, after the stablecoin failure last week and now we have an intermediary failure this week two different mm. very different fact patterns but in both cases pretty clearly there was leverage behind the scenes otherwise they would have been able to continue to to, to make all their withdrawals right yeah totally makes sense and you've been warning about this for a long time right um, again to quote i think this is one of your tweets you wrote that leverage based financialization of bitcoin and the sector wide damage it causes you've been warning against that so can you please explain what is the damage that it's causing um and how do these liquidation cascades work and what uh, we've kind of touched on this already but what is their net impact on price like what's mechanically happening yeah uh in the system and then to the price yeah well we talked about the damage in terms of the price that Mm -hmm. it suppresses the price especially the blow off top it cut off the top, so to speak, uh, and we never saw it uh, because there was so much price suppression happening mm-hmm. with all of the 
the fake supply satisfying real demand. Mm. Um, um, but it's, it exacerbates it on the downside too, because now no one knows just how much selling pressure is going to be coming. Mm -hmm. And so no one wants to catch the falling knife and it's, and it's tough when you get these liquidation cascades because you don't really know where the bottom is. Mm -hmm. But the hodlers, we've seen all this before, like, you know, in March, 2020, we just, you know, if you're not leveraged, you're, you're, you're just saying, all right, my mark to market went down, but I wasn't going to sell anyway. So, um, okay. Um, you yeah, know, I, I I've been through these cycles today. before. Yeah. Good if, you. <laughs> if you sit on some dry powder, you can be opportunistic. So that's, it was great. That's yeah. at a, yeah. yeah. Well, but that's, the, your point is well taken because the volatility that comes, that is the damage that's been created. Mm. It actually doesn't, it doesn't give the good volatility, right? It cut the top off but there's worse volatility on the downside. Mm -hmm. And so the impact of that is that it, it, it definitely picks people's pockets. And it also, it increases the cost of capital for the intermediaries in the sector. What am I getting at here? For the finance folks who are listening, you'll understand it, it, my reference to the capital asset pricing model. Again, it's not a perfect model, mm -hmm. but the volatility of the underlying, if it goes up, the cost of equity goes up for everyone in the industry. Mm. And therefore the capital becomes higher, more expensive for everyone in the industry to finance. Mm. And therefore they have to charge you more in the service fees that they charge you. Mm. So that's that's another indirect way that there's been a lot of damage from all of this leverage. Mm. They, again, the circulation credit type leverage that has hit this industry. Um, mm. It's making everybody have to charge more because They've got to cover their higher cost of capital. It's um, it's a you know hardcore finance concept, um, but um, it it does play out in reality because if those exchanges or in, or intermediaries are trying to raise money, they're going to be right. raising less money at a lower valuation, and right. that's because their cost of capital is higher. Yeah, this is basically injecting more uncertainty into the marketplace, so capital gets more expensive. Exactly. That's a yeah. simple way to say it. And that's yeah. exactly what it, what it ultimately is. I gave mm. you the fancy way to say it, but <laughs> everyone understands yes. that, that anytime something's more uncertain, they want to be compensated for the higher risk. Of course. So, and, yeah. and when you make the volatility higher, especially if it's asymmetric, where it's worse on the downside and you don't get as much upside, then of course, it's not good for the, for all the industry. Yeah. No, beautifully said. What, so, uh, you know, I've been forced to kind of I used to view crypto asset, the broad crypto asset space is something like liquid venture capital. And then Bitcoin is something fundamentally different, more something yep. more like the internet itself. But I'm increasingly feeling called to reevaluate my position that this space that I thought I was analogizing to liquid venture capital is much more scammy than I thought it was. I knew there was a lot of, oh, yeah. a lot of junk out there, but man, I... I struggle to find anything that's not scammy lately. So do you have, do you think, and this, maybe I was influenced by books I read earlier on when I got into the space, like, um, oh, the titles will escape me now. The, the age of cryptocurrency. And they wrote a sequel book. They went into deep mm -hmm. theory about blockchain and distributed consensus, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sitting think... on my shelf. <laughs> In <laughs> fact, you... there it is. I can't, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that there are other viable, even if theoretical, use cases for alternative crypto assets or blockchains or distributed consensus technologies other than money? Yeah. 
or how have your views, what, what are your views now and how have they, how have they changed over time? That's a great question because it ultimately is the question behind Bitcoin maximalism. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I both consider ourselves to be maxis. I always like to say I'm a long-term maxi. I support the, the innovation in true technology innovation. Now, to your point, a lot of what we're seeing is just scams. Mm -hmm. It's the old scams wrapped up in new, new costumes. Right. But, um, but there is some serious new technology out there. And I tend to migrate towards those that are, that are seriously... Uh, making contributions in the distributed systems and cryptography areas mm. of, of, the, of the world, Bitcoin is still the one, in mm. my view, that is decentralized and is secure. Mm. Um, but, but I also definitely think that there's room for blockchains. It tends to be in shared infrastructure. So one of the things I did when I was at my enterprise startup, my prior company called Symbian, that was a company you may have come across. Well, maybe not. Adam Krellenstein was one of the earlier Bitcoin core developers, and he was credited with creating the, what is, I think Coindesk gives him um, credit for co-creating the first altcoin called Counterparty, which is a, a layer two coin. Um, Tatiana uh, issued Tatiana coin on Counterparty. <laughs> um, they were it was the first experiment to try yeah. to um to try to to create smart contracts in bitcoin and i believe it was 2014 mm. so it was quite a while ago and adam was a cto of symbian and um symbian built a a proprietary system that didn't have a token okay so what's the use of a smart contract system for a token well i helped deploy that um it, i was around for the pilot project it is now publicly disclosed that it's in production at vanguard and what, what is Vanguard doing? It, it's shared infrastructure for data where it was really critical for all the users of market index data to be able to, to prove with a clear audit trail that they got the, the, the market index data from their index provider at a particular mm. point in time. And to be able to get that data to the portfolio managers because in that market, any tracking error is potentially you know, a real problem because um, just tiny tracking errors end up causing potentially huge losses in index assets, index fund assets, if the tracking error is higher, especially if it's consistently higher than, than competing funds, right? So getting the index data to the portfolio managers, ingesting it, updating it, and then making sure that everybody who's using it is using the same data. That's actually a pretty good use case. It's funny that you ask this question because I was just thinking the other day, Adam taught me so much about database architecture. And again, we're leaving the scammy part aside. Some of these database architectures, many of them don't need tokens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, but if, they, if they get too distributed, right? These are quasi centralized, which means they're not mm -hmm. decentralized. But if they get too distributed, then you start to get the DDoS problem. You start to get the spam problem that, mm -hmm. Dr. Adam Back has spent yep. his whole career thinking about. So that kind of conversation, yeah, there are database architectures that absolutely work for, for shared distributed systems that, that run smart contracts that mm -hmm. in the shared infrastructure context, but there's no token. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't hear very much about Hyperledger. That was the big thing back in, you know, 2015, 2016, IBM um, um, curated that. As a, as a public blockchain that was open source, but it was permissioned. Um, so it really truly wasn't public. It was more of a 
of uh, there are different federated versions of these. Um, and these are walled gardens. These are clubs. You've got to get into the club and mm -hmm. everyone knows who's in the club. Okay. But that's not Bitcoin. And that's right. so different than Bitcoin. And have I seen that those use cases absolutely make sense for that kind of shared infrastructure? Yep, I have. Does it mean that there has to be a gas fee with it in the form of a token? Mm. Not necessarily. Um, but, but yes, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I look at a lot of these technologies, technologies and shake my head at the scams that are being used, but there are, there's real experimentation with technology out there as well. And I'm not mm. as quick to dismiss that. Uh, I just wish that they didn't have tokens. And in a lot of cases, they don't need them. But if they have a token and they don't need it, then you should be asking yourself why. Right. Um, is it is that really just because they want to pull the pump proverbial pump and dump? Yeah. Um, and then also you mentioned the VCs. I thought I think all of us woke up over the last year to the game that was being played with pre mines, um, with the VCs yeah. getting right. you know coins at a discount, and then they they realized their profit on uh, on the token distribution event. And in the VC world, they used to have to wait five, six, seven years for returns. Yeah. And now they were shortening the duration of their business, turning their inventory a lot faster if they could get to the, you know, if they could get a realization event within the first year. That that is not the venture capital business. That's right. trading business. Yeah. And uh, boy, a lot wasn't disclosed in terms of that. The SEC could have been far more um, aggressive in enforcement actions than it was during all that. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting how much that their business model just was accelerated. And I don't know, it, it just was interesting to see the traditional venture capital and this weird crypto ICO thing sort of merge over the past few years yes. in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think yeah. that was a great point. You said actually that, okay, sure, there's some technological promise here in distributed database architecture. But maybe, mm -hmm. perhaps this is the first question you should ask any aspiring project is, why do you need a token? Because yes. I think that's kind of the fundamental question that no project has successfully answered. They've tried to answer it a million different ways, but I, I haven't heard anything compelling. Um, let me ask you this. This is something I think about a lot. Clearly, well, I don't want to say clearly. I have conviction, and I think you share the conviction that Bitcoin has achieved decentralization. Yes, but it did not start that way. Started Correct. very centralized in one guy's head, presumably one guy, <laughs> Satoshi. Yeah, and then mm -hmm. it it naturally proliferated into this decentralized ecosystem we have now. Yep. Can we do that again, or is this a kind of a one-time? I'm not for money per se. I kind I, I don't think you could do money again because money is you know, the bigger the network, the better. Yep. But could we yep. achieve decentralization on some other project, some other distributed architecture? Yeah, maybe. And certainly a lot of people are trying in, mm. the, in, in the alternatives space, uh, but I don't think anybody's achieved it. You know, mm. Ethereum, of course, has been around the longest mm -hmm. and it's nowhere close to achieving it. And now it's abandoning that architecture and moving to a proof of stake system, mm -hmm. apparently, if they actually do achieve it. And I still am a little skeptical that they will achieve it, but, um, but it's even, even on a proof of work structure, it was pretty centralized. So compared to Bitcoin for sure. So good question. I, I don't think any of us can peer into the future and see that clearly enough 
but as every day goes by, it's like a, it's like a, a variation of the Lindy effect. As every day mm -hmm. goes by that Bitcoin uh, continues one. to be the only one, yeah. there's probably a, a, a log, a log scale yeah. reducing probability that, yeah. that anything else really challenges it. That's what I'm money. experiencing. I think is that exactly what you just described. It's like the more days that go by, Yep. The space that I thought was a lot of experimentation seems to be a lot more scamminess and there's no yeah. decentralization really in sight because even with Ethereum, if they go to proof of stake, I mean, that's anti-decentralization. That's going to, that's correct. I, yeah. I think that'll unwind that whole progress, if any progress well, has been made. It's kind of a new version of the corporation, right? Yeah. Um, and so I actually am pretty sympathetic with the way the sec looks at proof of stake hmm. looks 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 an awful like what you're getting is a dividend payment and yeah. you're effectively a you know right. a shareholder you're yeah. not getting a corporate it's not a corporate form right and um, some of these projects are not truly behaving in the same way but mm -hmm. some are um and so i i think i've said this multiple times before i know everyone loves to hate on the sec but the sec has actually been a lot more hands-off probably than they should have been because some of these, you know, there were a lot of people warning about the Terra situation yeah. for months. And the SEC did send subpoenas back in December. And then it sat out there for another five months. And yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, it, that's interesting how you said that too. It, it looks a lot like a corporation because that's one of the mm -hmm. big things they work on are these decentralized autonomous organizations. Yeah. So maybe there will be some blending there uh, at some point, right? With the traditional corporate form and some of these technologies, perhaps. Well, and I think there already is. So Wyoming passed the Dow LLC law, and that mm. was a law that I didn't help write, but I didn't criticize it mm. because, and by the way, it's not truly decentralized. Right. Um, and I'll tell you how, how the Bitcoin maxis could look at that and say, oh, that, oh okay, I can live with that. Um, it's not, it's not a DAO. It's not truly decentralized if you have an LLC because mm. there's a control person that registers the LLC. Right. Once there's a control person, then the DAO LLC can get a bank account, yeah. can get a brokerage account, et cetera, um, because they can pass you know, the KYC laws that apply mm. to regulated financial institutions. Again, there's that word regulated. Yeah. But uh, needless to say, um, uh, the, the, why, why would a, a maxi look at that and support it? Because that is a form of business entity designed to look a lot more like a cooperative, but with liability protection built into it. So the members don't have unlimited liability. A lot of cooperatives have joint and several liability where every farmer in a cooperative is jointly and severally liable with all the other farmers in the cooperative. So let's, let's, let's create some limitation of liability. I know the true libertarians don't like that, don't think it should exist at all, um, but it does foster more business to be able to form organizations. And then when you have something like 40,000 different members, of that DAO LLC that are voting on, on, on what the organization should be voting on. Um, the paper administration of something like that, here's the punchline, the paper administration of something like that is so unwieldy that it effectively precludes it. And so the Wyoming DAO LLC law breaks through in one simple sense. It allows for a smart contract to be the operating agreement for that organization mm -hmm. and tells a judge in the event of a dispute, you are looking to the code wow. and you will not get an English language, English prose 
operating agreement written on a piece of paper. Wow. That is an advancement. That's so again, yeah. And, and yeah. It, you know, again, a lot of folks would look at it and say, ah, oh, Peshaw, it's not decentralized. Yep. Was never meant to be. To your original right. question, you asked about whether there would be hybrids. Yep. Uh, well, there is a hybrid. And in fact, actually, I don't know how many Dow LLCs are registered, but within the first few months, about 50 registered yeah. in Wyoming. And I would imagine it's in the several hundreds now. Um, taking advantage of this because it gives you limited liability protection and it allows you not to have to go through these all the bureaucracy of, of the old traditional industrial age forms of organization. Right. And now we have an internet version form of organization. Yes, you have to have a human being involved, yeah. but that's an advancement. And I think most, even the most, even most purists, if they understood it that way, would say, okay, yeah, that's an advancement. I don't like the name Dow LLC probably, yeah. but but it's an advancement in in terms of, of how a, a government recognizes yes. an entity. Well, to just have a governing document, quote unquote document, that is a smart contract or something on chain, yes. that's really interesting, right? Because now you've got yes. this integration of traditional law and these systems, right? There's at least Correct. a touch point between them. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to ask you, so in light of all this, what are your views just on Bitcoin cultural toxicity? Um, I've, my views, I don't know, I guess they're still changing currently, but as I, you know, see more and more of this scamming as more and more people being taken advantage of, you just keep, keep chalking up another point. I'm like, oh man, they got them again. They got them again. So yeah. and you're seeing no wins on the other side, like for for any of this liquid venture capital doesn't seem to be having much success in the marketplace. Um, I'm just curious your views on it. And if you think it's, you know, a net benefit or a net detriment. Well, I think Bitcoin is winning every day because mm -hmm. it's, it's gaining users. It's building network effects. It's gaining its hash rate, right. Which is deepening every time mm -hmm. this cash rate hits a new high, the network's never been more secure. So I'll leave that aside. I don't care what the mm -hmm. price says, to be honest. Yeah. I've, I've said for years, it's right. the least interesting aspect of the hash Bitcoin rate. network. So big, yeah. Bitcoin's winning every day. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's still printing blocks. It, it is, it doesn't care what the price is. It doesn't care whether there's liquidity in the secondary market. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's even, I make, make mistakes talking about Bitcoin as if it's the secondary trading market. No, Bitcoin is the network. Right. And as long as it's printing blocks, uh, it's, you know, it's fine yeah. and, and it will continue to be fine. But yeah, look, um, I, I, I'm getting more pure in, in, mm. in, for the same reasons. I think a lot of, a lot of people are um, because yeah, nobody likes to see people scammed and mm. we all get blowback in the industry because mm. we have to defend against this stuff. When I first started in Bitcoin back in, I was at Morgan Stanley. Um, it, it, the whole question back then was Gox. And then the other question was, who is Satoshi? Those are the two biggest questions I, I constantly got and had to defend against because everybody just thought, oh, Peshaw, um, first of all, it's all a scam. It's all a fraud. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, who is this Satoshi? We, we can't do business until we know who this Satoshi was. Um, so it, the questions change, but they're different. They're just different manifestations of the same question. And a lot of it is, is cloaked in fear of people who don't want to have to learn. There are, boy, there are certainly a lot of people of a certain era who hope that they can retire before they ever have to learn this mm. because it's too intimidating, but their kids and grandkids are whizzes at it and wouldn't think of setting foot in a bank branch or writing a paper check. Yeah, right. right. So, yeah. 
um, there's definitely a generational thing in, in, in our industry for sure. Um, but you know, not always, I, I, I always like to point out when, when we had the first Wyoming blockchain coalition cocktail event, it was purely crowdsourced. Um, I think that's the first time I met Eric Voorhees. He brought a bunch of folks up from Shapeshift in Denver. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people came in from all over and there was a Latina grandmother who was driven by her granddaughter huh. to the event and she was mining Bitcoin in her garage. So, wow. you know, you don't, it, 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 we don't want to always draw the stereotype conclusion that, it, that, that it's only folks of a certain demographic, mm. because there are folks of, you know, in their seventies and eighties who are yeah. mining Bitcoin and you might find how surprising they are in, <laughs> in, uh, in where they are, right? That's what's so, the beauty of this network. It's inclusive to anyone who wants to download the code and, and run it. Yeah. And that's what's beautiful about it. No one really, has to ask yeah. for permission. Yeah, really, truly is just universally inclusive is the beauty, frankly. All right, Bitcoin yep. is for everybody. Yep. Um, Absolutely. It finally, a, I guess you could call it an apolitical organization, something like that, right? It doesn't matter what we do. Does it, like you said, secondary markets, liquidations, price, politics, not, nothing happening in the real world. Bitcoin just keeps doing what it says it will do no matter what. Right. And there's something yeah. really beautiful about that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I joined the Bretton Woods Committee. And uh, if you look at their memo on crypto, they actually talk about Ponzi schemes such as Bitcoin. And I, I wouldn't put my name on that memo because Bitcoin itself is not a Ponzi scheme. There's no money coming in or out of it. Right. It, the, the literal definition is of yes. a Ponzi scheme is new money goes to pay out the old investors. Yes. There's no such thing. Bitcoin's just a, it's just a bookkeeping system. It's just a yeah. ledger. It yeah. is neutral. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't know that it's money. And, um, and that's, what's so beautiful about it. It can't be manipulated. And it's definitely not a Ponzi scheme. Um, there are I, certainly I, plenty of Ponzi schemes in our sector, though, as you know. Uh, yes, plenty, plenty. I actually, it's funny you say that because I tweeted this out once that I think a Ponzi scheme is defined as something that offers, you know, high rates of return with low risk. And it preys on investor ignorance, actually, because mm -hmm. people are just mm -hmm. getting duped. And I said, Bitcoin is an anti-Ponzi scheme. It promises exactly. no rate of return. Right. And it, it has obvious risk. <laughs> and yes. I think it encourages investor education, actually, because when you get Agreed. into Bitcoin, you start asking these questions. What is money? What is this? What is that? And you learn a lot in the process or learn through pain, as you said, with a Gox experience. Yeah. So yeah. if anything, I still I learn. Bitcoin's like an anti it's like as far from a Ponzi scheme as you can possibly be. Agreed. 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 But that said, they were not incorrect in saying there are Ponzi schemes all over our industry. And we've unfortunately seen it, seen a couple be be unveiled and i suspect there are others out there it's it, i love the phrase you mentioned earlier it's warren buffett's phrase or at least attributed <laughs> yeah. to him all the time it's not yeah. until the tide goes out that you see who's swimming naked yeah yeah and the, you know in the cred bankruptcy if you go back and look at the loss given default in the cred bankruptcy it was over 90 percent and yeah. what was disclosed in the delaware filing cred was a was a lender that went bankrupt about i don't know 12 18 months ago and if you if you look at the filings of delaware in the bankruptcy court, um, they were running fractional, just like with Quadriga, just like with Gox. They, these guys were running fractional for months ahead of time mm -hmm. and trying to trade their way out of it. They right. were not solvent for months. 
Right. And that's what happens in financial services in the intermediaries, not Bitcoin itself, but the intermediaries. If they're running fractional, they're running, they're insolvent. It's not yeah. until they become illiquid that they that the doors right. close. Right, right. And that's right. what we've seen with these other situations is that they finally became illiquid. But what 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 all all that did to use a Mises phrase is just revealed the insolvency that was there all along. It just was, it just hadn't been revealed. Right. Yeah, this is such good points. And that distinction too, insolvency versus illiquidity, I think it's a good way to look at how governments keep kicking the can down the road, right? <laughs> An insolvent government can go on for a long, long time by just creating the liquidity. Yep. Um, okay. I know we've been going for quite a while here, so I'll try to wrap up with this question. We just saw today, really, Bitcoin's price draw down into the low 20,000s. I think we hit 23, mm -hmm. 22,000 perhaps. But on the other hand, Bitcoin hash rate hits a new all-time high. <laughs> right. Which, yep. you know, if you're following the fundamentals, I think it's much more useful to look at the hash rate than the price. For sure. What type Definitely. of indicator do you consider the hash rate to be? It, is it like leading or lagging? And then as a secondary question that how do you explain the nature of hash rate to no coiners? Because when you say that, if we say the term hash rate to 99.9% .9 of the world, <laughs> they just look at us with a blank stare. So I'm just yeah. wondering how you explain that. Well, the hash rate is what secures the network. It's the processing power to secure the network. And the Bitcoin network uh, is, is many, 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 many multiples by, by many, many, many multiples, the, the most secure computer network in the world that has ever existed and, and probably will ever exist. Um, so I can't explain it in computer science terms. There was a time when I could, but I haven't mm -hmm. done that in years. So the hash rate is the measure of that. It's, it's how many hashes per second, uh, which, is, which is ultimately what provides the network security against double spend and other similar attacks mm. that would take the network down. And so it is critical to, to the network security. And on a fundamental basis, historically, there's a correlation between Bitcoin hash rate and Bitcoin price. Mm -hmm. But remember what we said about models. Mm -hmm. they, you have to look at multiple of them and kind of triangulate right. and understand uh, that, you know, what might be causing the model to diverge. Clearly, you're pointing out there's a divergence here. Mm -hmm. uh, the, price, the price of Bitcoin is nowhere near its high. And despite its hash rate being at its high, Historically, we've seen those two move in tandem, but never in perfect tandem. Yeah. And uh, you know, one of the it's 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 like the classic question of of a value stock. There's a phrase called value trap. For how long is a value stock trapped being a value stock before it's, before it starts to work as an investment? And the answer is it could be a value trap for a long time. So oftentimes, you need a catalyst for an undervalued stock to reach its theoretical fair value. And yeah. I think that that's, that could very well be true here in Bitcoin as well. We've got a lot of clouds on the, on the storm, storm clouds on the horizon. Uh, one of which of course is regulation and oh. wanting to understand just how bad the, the, the ax is gonna swing when it does swing in terms of a hit to the industry. From my perspective, I think it's gonna be a positive. For those of us who anticipated that we were going mm -hmm. to need to be regulated, again, right. there's that word again, not just licensed, mm -hmm. regulated. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we, were, we tried to get ahead of it uh, and, and set up a regulatory regime for our industry to be able to integrate directly with the traditional 
financial sector in a way that is safe and sound. And I understand a lot of the plumbing of the traditional banking system, of course, and the plumbing of Bitcoin to be able to do those things, to be able to, to recommend how, how to do that. Uh, but we haven't been let through yet. Um, and yeah. so, I, yeah, you know, those of us that will ultimately, I believe we will ultimately succeed in getting through um, and the regulated players will be there. Uh, you know, I think they'll make a lot more people a lot more comfortable. And, and I do believe that that money will migrate towards the regulated players over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, you look at any regulated industry, the regulators uh, don't always catch up and they don't always have an incentive to stay caught up with technology. And that's definitely true here. And uh, it will happen once the regulated Bitcoin players come onto the scene. But it's coming. The regulation's coming. And, and those storm clouds, for certain parts of our industry, they will be fatal. Yeah. Um, they, there will be entire swaths of our industry that are no longer allowed to operate under the licensing regime that they're using because it will be deemed insufficient from a regulatory point of view. Mm, wow. Well, good, good knowledge and good things to look out for. You know, I felt really um, like an obvious trade today to buy Bitcoin to the you know, almost a very low price relative to its recent top, but at the same time, mm -hmm. hash rate sitting an all-time high. I mean, this yep. know, valuation fundamentals are high and market uh, price is low. Seems like a, a good buy. And I, I agree with you that regulatory clarity, that's what's going to support sustainable growth of the space over time and ultimately yeah. lead to yeah. the permanence of Bitcoin as an asset, right? That There's a yep. big question mark in, in a lot of people's minds, I believe, because we haven't, we don't have the clarity. People are like, what is it? Nope. This is a Correct. lot of people stumbling block in the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Even if they think it is all these technical, um, does all these technical, amazingly things that we say it does. They just say, oh, government will never allow it quite simply. Um, so we need clarity there, I think. So I agree with you. Yeah. And I think it's coming. I mean, we haven't talked about Lightning Network yet, but I'm a huge fan of Lightning Network. Yeah. I think that's going to end up replacing a lot of the payment rails for low low value Bitcoins, uh, low value payments. Bitcoin's becoming a, a payment rail for high value <clears throat> payments just simply because of the the liquidity that you need in order to to move. It's in other words, it's available to move billions of dollars for a very large. Uh, sorry, for a very low price. Mm -hmm. um, but we haven't figured out how to do that because the price is a little bit too high for you to use your Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee. I bought right. all my Christmas presents on, presents on overstock.com with Bitcoin back in 2014 when it nice. first... Uh, when it first offered it, and uh, and and so it, you know, but the, the fees got to be too high that it wasn't even going to be worth it to 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 do low value transactions right. like that. So I think that's also something that's coming. We're only in the first inning in in this technology, in my humble opinion. I, I think we've got a long way to go, and support the engineers. They're still by far the most important people in in the industry, and the engineers working on Lightning. Hats off to you. It's, there are different implementations of Lightning. We're not sure which ones are going to work, mm. but I am a big believer that that is going to be the, the uh, well, or which ones are going to take over. They're all, mm. they're all working right now, but they're still really young, right? I'm yeah. a big believer though, that that's going to be powerful payment rails. It gives us true internet money for, for low value purchases to be able to buy that cup of coffee without having to pay on-chain fees. Um, that's coming and really, really important and empowering technology. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, and, and thanks for bringing that up. The idea of global instant final settlement or near instant, near instant 
near final settlement. I mean, that's a really big deal, obviously. Yeah. And, and by the way, for those that want to stake your Bitcoin or earn yield on your Bitcoin, that's, you that's where you're going to be able to yeah. do it without putting it at risk to a counterparty. Mm-hmm. Put it in a lightning channel. Yes, mm-hmm. you're locking it up. You're giving up some liquidity so you can't right. sell it. But you're actually going to be getting fees for that over time. And I think as that, as that network deepens, it mm-hmm. hasn't really hit network effects yet. But as it does deepen, more yeah. of the hodlers will start to come out and participate in, in lightning channels. And we'll start to get much better liquidity than we have today. So do you that's, think that's that, something I'm definitely keeping an eye on? Do you think that would emerge as the risk-free rate in the future then? Just staking yes. lightning channels? Yes. Yeah. Because you don't have counterparty risk. Yeah. So risk-free right. rate, you shouldn't have a counterparty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all think about the risk-free rate, you know, in fiat. It's yeah. it's it's basically coming from the government counter yeah. government rate, but that's a counterparty. Yeah. So or central bank, that's a counterparty. But yeah. in the uh, in 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 the le- lightning network, there's no counterparty. You're just locking up your ability to sell your Bitcoin temporarily in order to anchor those transactions to the to the base blockchain. Yeah, it's a powerful concept. Yeah, it really is. Um, and it's not yield. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's yield. fees. Yeah, it's fees, not yield. It's brilliant. No counterparty. Yeah. Another beautiful yep. thing about Bitcoin. If we get to that future, that- so. Kaylin, I've you really, bet. really Thank enjoyed you. this conversation. Um, yeah, I'm sure my audience knows all about you, but just in case they don't, could you please let them know where they can find out more about you or your work? Uh, easiest place to follow me is on crypto Twitter at Caitlin Lung underscore and then custodiabank.com. Thanks for all your support, everybody. Thanks. Thanks Caitlin. for having me on. This is really, really fun. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Yes, indeed. <laughs>